Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a very, very, very special episode because normally the people that I interview, I always have met at somewhere along the line or I run into them or I know of them. And this particular guest, Ron Friedman, is somebody who actually is teaching, I would say, in his spare time, but he would say it's probably a career now. And one of my interns, Nathan Sellers, is in his class and has been, it seems like every day the guy's telling me, you should get this guy in, you should get this guy in. I'm like, listen, I got all these people in, these network presidents, these showrunners. I don't know if you know anybody who might be teaching your class would be okay, you know, because I've had teachers. And when I went to Boston University, my first teacher that I ever encountered, I was from Longmeadow, Massachusetts. I go, I'm walking around trying to find the Morse Auditorium. I find it. There's people filing in like it's an ACDC concert. It's a huge venue. The biggest class I've ever been to is maybe 50 people. And here I'm going to be exposed to my first college professor. I have all, you know, I've heard so much respectful things about these people. And we're waiting there. It's like there's a balcony in this place, okay? It's like this is a place where you would have seen, like, Tracy Chapman in the 80s. And I'm there. I'm waiting. Finally, a guy limps out. The average age of this guy is dust, okay? He looks like Burl Ives and Bernie Brillstein had a baby, okay? He, he, he walks out. And 
He's looking around. He's frustrated. He finally picks up a little, like, something. I hear this crackling noise, and it's like a lavalier mic. And he's trying to pin it to his lapel, and it keeps, you know, the noises are deafening. You can hear him under his breath saying, oh, fuck it. And he has the mic up to his mouth. He's got this little lavalier pin mic up to his mouth. And he's first thing he said, doesn't say hello, welcome, this is your first class. He just says, does anybody know the two things that make a human being happy in this world? You know, we're, we're stunned. You know, this technically should be the easiest question in the world. People are raising their hands. Every answer they're giving is wrong. Finally, he says, I'll tell you what the two things are. Fruitful labor, labor that you go out and do. It puts food on the table, a roof over your head, and you're happy doing it. And the other, reciprocal love. And this is the intro to sociology at Boston University. And this microphone sucks. <laughs> Class is dismissed. And he throws the microphone down and limps off. And that was my first class. <laughs> so when Nathan here said, I'm going to have my professor speak, automatically in my mind I had this vision of this character coming out who I thought was respected and ended up being a pain in the ass. But after I just he mentioned it maybe for the 78th time, I decided I'll do a little research on Ron Friedman. And the first thing I found was... This guy is like a Encyclopedia Britannica, or for those of you actually living in the real world, a Wikipedia of television writing experience and knowledge like no one else I've ever seen in my life. This guy has had an amazing career, and he's worked with a ton of people. And one of the people he's worked with is a guy that I want to talk about in this cold open. But before I do, I would just like to give a shout out to all of you who listen to this podcast. I am so grateful for all of you. And if you ever, ever get a chance and you want to do something nice to support the podcast, you can go to my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. There'll be like a little Amazon banner up top. If you're thinking of buying anything, just go on it, buy it. It doesn't cost you anything more money. It just gives a little tiny bit of money to the Barry Katz Kids College Education Fund. I appreciate all your support. And if you don't, that's okay because they'll probably go to a community college. Thank you so much. I'm going to tell you, I think about a guy who you work with, Ron, and that is Ron Howard. And I think of something that is very important for all of you out there who are artists or all of you out there that have anything to do with any kind of business where you have different offshoots of growth within your business. So there, there's normally two kinds of people in business, in any kind of business you're working on. There's the people who are satisfied with their thing they're doing in life in that particular business. Like you might go to a law firm, there might be somebody who's an executive assistant, a paralegal, and they're thrilled with that. You might be in a hospital and there might be somebody who's a nurse and they are thrilled with just being a nurse for the rest of their career. 
And then there's other people who want to go off and do other things within their form of profession and take their inspiration and their skill set to all different avenues of things. When I think about Ron Howard, I think about something that always blows me away that I want to share with people in the entertainment business and beyond. I feel uniquely qualified to talk about this because The Andy Griffith Show was one of the first shows I ever watched in my life. And what I found was, as I was growing up, something strange was happening to me in that we had one television in our home that was in my mom's bedroom. It was black and white. It had three channels and maybe one UHF channel, and it had a rabbit ear antenna, one of them which was a coat hanger, and one of the dials had a pliers that you had to turn the channels with. We didn't have a lot of money. And my mom used to let me eat my lunch and dinner on the floor of her bedroom with my back against the foot of her bed. And I used to watch the Three Stooges a lot. And one of the things I found about the Three Stooges, which I don't think I've ever shared on the podcast, is that their comedy was obviously not cerebral. Their comedy was physical. And I would watch it as a young child, and I never laughed. But I was mesmerized by the Stooges. But I would just never laugh. And one time, my mom heard me laugh out loud really hard, and she ran in because she knew I never laughed at the Three Stooges, but I watched And she said, you laughed. You laughed at the Three Stooges. What happened to make you laugh? And I said, well, Larry or Curly said to Mo, let me think about that. And Mo looked at them and said, every time you think, you weaken the nation. (laughs) And my mom laughed. And as she left, I realized that I wasn't really interested in physical comedy. I wanted to hear the spoken word, the written joke of comedy. And the Andy Griffith show was the first show that segued into that. It was a black and white show. And my favorite character on the show was Opie. And it was played by a young actor in single digits named Ron Howard. So then I went to college. And I got to college. And the first movie I ever really got to see when I was in college sort of on my own movie called Splash, a movie that I really, really loved. And as I'm watching the movie, I see on the screen, directed by Ron Howard. And I was like, wow, that, that's the same guy who was Opie? That's incredible. And then a decade or so later, when I was really, really excited about single-camera comedies, I rallied around a show called Arrested Development, which won an Emmy. And when it won the Emmy... A man went on stage who was the executive producer of the show, one of them. His name, Ron Howard. And then, as he got bigger and bigger and bigger, his company got bigger and bigger and bigger, which is, imagine, hundreds of hours of content have come out of that company with him as an owner where he writes the checks and people don't write the checks to him. He puts things together. So in your career, know this. You have a choice. You can stay on the same seat of the bus all the time you want. You can stay in the back of the bus, in the middle, 
You can go to the front of the bus. Or if you really, really work hard and have goals and you really work on the skill sets of all of the things and the tools that God gave you, soon enough, I can guarantee you, you'll be driving the bus. And if you really want to, one day, you'll own the bus company. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am very, very excited today to introduce Ron Friedman to you, and I'm going to do it properly. Ron Friedman is a television writer and producer. He has written for numerous classic TV shows and created some of the most iconic animated series in television. Born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he earned a bachelor's degree in architecture before turning his attention to writing. He went on to write, get this, over 700 hours of television for some of the most popular shows in the history of the medium, including The Andy Griffith Show, Bewitched, Gilligan's Island, I Dream of Jeannie, Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels, All in the Family, The Odd Couple, Happy Days, Get Smart, and multiple episodes of Fantasy Island. He's written nearly a dozen made-for-TV movies, including Lucy in London for Lucille Ball and The Rosie and Buddy Show, starring Tom Arnold and Roseanne Barr. In addition to his work in television, he has written for countless stage acts, including legendary performers Jonathan Winters, Henny Youngman, Danny Kaye, Andy Williams, and Dick Van Dyke. 
He's perhaps best known for creating the animated television series G.I. Joe, writing all four G.I. Joe miniseries and developing the Japanese animated series Transformers for American television, which led to his writing the 1986 animated feature Transformers the Movie. With longtime friend Stan Lee, he developed the Bionic 6 and the Marvel Action Hour, which included original stories featuring superheroes like Iron Man, Spider-Man, and the Fantastic Four. He has taught screenwriting at USC Film School for nearly two decades, and most recently, by special invitation, he has been teaching at the Chapman University Dodge Film School. But I think the thing that's most exciting about my guest today is the fact that he created two characters that were iconic in television history. Uncle Arthur in Bewitched for Paul Lind, which launched him into superstardom at that point in television history, and then later on, a few decades later, with a show that was one of my favorites ever, Happy Days, where he created the character of the Fawns for Henry Winkler. Please welcome my guest today, the legendary Jewish writer, Ron (laughs) Friedman. Thank you very much, Barry. It's a mitzvah to be sitting here on my tochers high above Los Angeles, And if you listen quietly, calmly, please pay attention. We're close enough to Hollywood so you can hear the sound of asses being kissed. (laughs) As far as knowing Ron Howard, I wish I did know Ron Howard. I'd have a better house. But what happened is I was a writer. And in the years when I was a writer, when typewriters were wood burning and there was no such thing as a computer... Writers were not permitted to mingle with people who were actually in front of the camera. In fact, the big joke then was, did you hear about the Polish starlet? She's fucking the writer. So the chance of her doing any good is like zero beyond zero. But did I write for The Andy Griffith Show? Yeah. Pat McCormick was my partner then, a legendary giant. And a Meshugana. Great comedian as well. Great comedian. Anyway, Pat McCormick, if you don't know who Pat McCormick is, let me just tell you, the man could embarrass a public toilet seat. And we did a Lucille Ball special in London, and I didn't want to be in public with Pat because his way of relating was he'd see a pretty girl on the street and say, blow me, and then push me and say, you ugly American, you've offended this young lady. I apologize on behalf of Americans everywhere. Anyway... He wanted to go to Westminster Abbey. I said, I'm not going into the Abbey with you. You'll humiliate me. He says, I'm a Harvard man. I know how to behave. So we go into Westminster Abbey, and Pat had a hobby. He put rolls of quarters in his pants pockets so he could drop his pants like a shot. He was doing that at the corner of 57th Street and 5th Avenue for months. People would come and photograph him in New York. Anyway, we're standing in Westminster Abbey. When I hear chunk, he drops his pants. Was he wearing underwear? Yes, the worst underwear you have ever seen. And the guard came over and said, not in Poet's Corner, sir. And Pat said, is this Poet's Corner? And the guard says, yes. He then recited, there once was a man from Nantucket. I was ejected from Westminster Abbey with that putz. (laughs) But let's say, Barry, you started out by saying I'm Jewish. Let me now tell you I sold, I had a wonderful album called Christmas Songs for Jewish People. 
I would now like to give you the first number, which is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Nothing good is happening. My son Jake, the licensed plumber, left his wife for a Polish bummer. And my daughter, Tammy Florence, graduate of Sarah Lawrence, called us up last week from Rome. She's living with a dyke. She ain't coming home. Don't hark me, angels. Please don't sing. Leave me alone. I'm suffering. Available Christmas. My God, I'm sure that sold more copies than the Beatles. <laughs> You're the only guest I've ever had that actually literally is performing for the Aerosmith poster. I've never seen anything I, like I've it. I've never just, had an audience that was I'm, that respectful. I'm just sitting back here wondering, do I exist? Well, I, this is unbelievable. <laughs> you definitely do, because I'm looking around your office, and I'm stunned to see that you represented Harry Houdini. Uh, he did because the, me and the missus still watch all of his half hours. He was really that's hilarious. That's fantastic. I can't believe it says here you were born in 1932. Exactly. That would make you almost 83 years old. Yes. But you don't look a day over. Anyway. As so, I always say, <laughs> it's the portrait of Dorian Jew. Only the portrait changes, not I. That's fantastic. You have the natural Jewish yarmulke, the skin yarmulke. Yes, I do. Yes, I used to comb it over, and that's one of the things that endeared me to Zero Mostel, who became a great friend. But that's another series of stories. What is the point of combing over? Uh, the desire to look youthful, but when you use hairspray to hold it down, what happens when the wind rises, it, it looks like you're on the deck of a carrier. It always embarrassed my wife. But Zero had the same thing. He had like two hairs that he coiled around endlessly, and he said it gave him gravitas. Is it better, you think, to shave your head? Uh, no, not unless you're being electrocuted. Then it's mandatory. But... <laughs> and getting back to Ron Howard, I would see him on the Paramount lot when I was writing Odd Couple and Happy Days. Nice kid, nice guy. But when he was Opie, writers were not permitted to mingle with the, uh, the money. We were treated like cattle quality cattle, but, uh, you know, and I overstayed my welcome at the Andy Griffith Show because after writing two episodes, Shelley, Sheldon Leonard said, I want you to write some more. Sheldon was the creator of the show. Yeah, and the producer, and anyway, we were in a very long and difficult story meeting because Sheldon seldom listened, and at any point, at certain point, he said to me, uh, you know, uh, what do you think of this? And I said, I liked it when I pitched it two hours ago. That was it. <laughs> you don't do those things. But then I was slightly arrogant because what the hell? The world was my oyster, not kosher, but that's the way life works. Well, right? let's go way, way back. Okay. When you were a little boy. Yes. Growing up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Absolutely. Overshadowed by Three Rivers Stadium. Which wasn't there. It was then Forbes Field. There was no Three River Stadium. I knew that. I was just testing you. Okay, good. So <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people cheat and pretend to be from Pittsburgh because it's really a lot of cachet. So tell me, what was your family life like? Was your family well off? Were they poor? And then tell me, right. if you will, how you went through that time in your life and what was your first inspiration to getting into writing comedy? Uh, that's That's easy. When you're a short Jew in a town that hates Jews, you either get funny or you're dead and beaten to a pulp. So very often I could find that the anti-Semites, after they hit me a little bit, would be happy to sit around while I made them laugh. Life began in Wirton, West Virginia, which was a steel town, and described in this way. If they give Pennsylvania an enema, they stick the bone in Wirton. 
<laughs> it was a tough steel town, and I grew up watching people that were trying to unionize Weir Steel beaten to death on the sidewalk, which makes you think when you're five, six, and seven years old. Also at the local synagogue on the high holidays, uh, drunks would stand out there with garbage cans and beat on the lids and shout jokes about Jews. Again, this is definitely something that stimulates your funny bone and also your get-the-fuck-out bone, which is something I wanted to do. My dad was a, had a men's clothing store, and he sold classy, bespoke English clothes because he had escaped from Poland, became a shirt maker in London, then came to the United States, sold shirts, then opened a clothing store. Anyway, he, what inspired me was this. My mother had been a concert pianist and an opera singer. She was brilliant, brilliant. But in those years, you weren't able, if you were a woman, to fulfill your ambition unless you were ready to defy family authority. And my mother had a seven-year contract with Paramount, and my grandfather, whom I loved, her father, forbade it. He said, somebody on a bus in Los Angeles will stick a needle in your arm. You'll become a white slave. You'll be drugged and become a prostitute. You can't do it broke her heart. But concert pianist, opera singer, this was something that made me think about art. She was also a painter. So I was inspired. My brother, who also became a, an actor and a writer, uh, we were inspired. We recognized the arts as a great thing. And I'm glad that was given to us. So that is how the twig was bent. And I remain a bent twig. And it's okay to be a bent twig. One of the things I want my students to know and anybody who's listening to this that has doubts about the worth of writing for television or writing anything, the Romans who were not sentimental said that art is long, life is short. Man, is that true? I'm saying this now from a position that tells me I have seen the future and I'm not in it for very long. So you're funny because people were threatening to beat the shit out of you. And so that helped you dispel that and get that away from you, uh, which, yes. which uh, happens to a lot of people in the inner city. And so where do you go to college and what's your first entry into this crazy business? Well, I'd always uh, longed for it from the time I was a kid. And my mother used to put my brother and me in little Yiddish dramas, which is unusual. And one of them, a famous kind of 19th century Yiddish play, play called Meyer, My Son. At the age of six, I was the father in a crepe beard, and my brother was the son. That was addictive. I haven't done that lately. There's not a big demand for Meyer, My Son. But I'm diminished by rejection, which, by the way, is one of the things anybody who envisions a career in the art has to be aware of. Edward G. Robinson said that as a young actor, he saw a famous actor who was in town in a play, and he went to see him and said, I want to be an actor. And this famous actor said, eschew rejection. A sort of archaic way of saying, fuck him, keep going. And this is important, because if you feel it, you got to go with it. And I felt it and went with it, even though I was a successful architect. The thing that made the decision for me was I had two brilliant kids, and I thought, what I'm making as an architect, I can never get them the right education. I can't afford it. So why don't I do what I love to do and try to write? Because I'd always written. I'd won awards for writing. 
I knew I could make people laugh, and I worked summer stock often when I was in school as an actor, scene designer. Anyway, Shelley Berman was in Pittsburgh playing one of the smarter clubs. Shelley Berman is a very, very talented stand-up comedian in the years of Buddy Hackett and the 50s. Shelley Berman's in a classy Pittsburgh nightclub, which means there were toilets for ladies, called the Vogue Terrace. I'd met him in summer stock, and I called him and convinced him he remembered me. I said, Shelley, I think I can write for you. He says, yeah, yeah, nobody can write for me. I said, well, give me a shot. He says, all right, here's my address. Send me something. I sent it to him. Six weeks later, he calls. He says, you know, you can write this shit, schmuck. Come to New York. I'll get you an agent. I'm on the Perry Como show. Come on and see me. So I talked to my boss at the architect's office. I went to the Perry Como show. Shelley's there, and he says, I'm having a nervous breakdown. I'm going to Jamaica. I can't talk to you. I said, I came in all the way from Pittsburgh. He said, it will be there when you return. But luckily, my fraternity brother, Gary Smith, was the scene designer on the Perry Como show. He said, did you write anything? I said, yeah, I got a bunch of stuff. He says, give it to me. I'll give it to the head writer, Goodman Ace. Goodman Ace was a legendary radio writer. He read my stuff, and he says, come here. He takes me into the writer's room, and he said, if any of these Jews die, I'll hire you. But I have no money in the budget. So come on with me to William Morris. I'll get Larry Auerbach to sign you. And he did. But I had to move to New York. So you go to New York and you get your stuff seen by the Perry Como show. They tell you to go to the agency. You've got an agent without anything at all, just somebody's recommendation, oh, which yeah. doesn't happen that often anymore. Well, he all, the agent also read my material and said, yeah. absolutely. And so you now got an agent. You're in New York, yet you have a full-time architectural job. And now you have to decide whether you want to pursue writing, even though you don't have a job just yet, but you know this guy's not going to work hard for you unless you show him that you're in New York. So what do you do next? Well, I decided to go for it, to follow my gut feeling that I can do this and I can excel at it. You know, I was a good architect, but I never felt I could be Frank Lloyd Wright, whom I admired tremendously. But as a writer, I felt I could be Arthur Miller. So you quit You quit a stable job. You have a yes. nice apartment. You have money coming in. You bet. You quit it. You, you turn your back on all of that. Yep. And then you go to New York with nothing. Exactly. No job, no money, no apartment just yet, nothing. Nothing. And at that moment, also, my wife... I have two kids. She said, I'm going to move in with my mother in Virginia. Let me know if you ever make a living again. Did that mean she was leaving you? Uh, I would say leaving is the correct word, yes. So you had the conversation with her, and your wife was not supportive of you. She said, listen, you either stay here and yep. earn a living like you've been doing, yes. or if you go there, it's over between us. Now, yes. you have two kids. Your wife, you've been married how long? Uh, at that point... Seven years, six years. So she gives you an ultimatum, and yes. you walk away from I your did. kids and your wife. Which, believe me, uh, caused me a lot of anguish. I love my kids. I love my wife. But I just felt this is where I had to be. All of those contemplating a similar move, I made it. Why? Well, I think I was lucky. And luck is an element. You've got to consider that. And luck is one of those irrational elements because, hey, life is an irrational element. It does not come with any guarantee. There's no 30 days return policy. People often say that the definition of luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And I think that's true. 
But even when that happens, sometimes the opportunity isn't what you think it is. There's a lot of people all over the country and the world who are in situations where I have clients that I represent that have wives and children and they stay in a certain area of the country and I know it hurts their ability to be as successful as they could be and it's this hard balance that they just feel like family first and I have to try to figure out how to make it here even though I know the odds are slim and none and slim left town but there's a chance and I'm going to keep my family together and then there's other people like yourself who say I've got to do this and I if my wife is not supportive of me then that's not the right person for me and I'm going to try to make it and then create a better relationship with my children later when they realize what I've done. I wish I had thought it through that specifically, but I didn't. I was driven by forces I didn't understand, as stupid as that sounds. It just felt like, yes, this is my time, this is what I need to do, and I have to do it or I'll just be a coward and resist having done it. And the thing is, my mother, who was brilliant, always said, if only I had gone to the Metropolitan Opera, if only I'd taken that contract at Paramount, if only I should have, I would, I might have, I should I never wanted to say that. I never want to have to say when it all comes to an end that I should have. I want to have tried it. I want to have done it. I want to know that I gave it my best shot. What did your mother say when you asked her advice? She said, well, at least you have something to fall back on. Because coming out of poverty, my father died when I was 11. My mother was a piano teacher. I mean, there's not too many jobs for an opera singer or a concert pianist. And my mother always said, you need something to fall back on, something to fall back on. So I took architecture because somebody told me it was a wedding of art and science. I was big on science. I was big on art. They didn't tell me it was a shotgun wedding and the bride was pregnant by the Pittsburgh Pirates. I went for it. <laughs> I later found out I'd always had something to fall back on. It's called my ass. I fall on it, I get up. So you go to New York. Yes. You have a little bit of money, I imagine. Where do you live and how do you go about getting your first gig? How does it happen? First, I had to get a place to live that would be big enough for my wife and kids, whom I hoped to lure back when I was making money. I saw these old women on the promenade. Looking at the newspaper, I went up and I introduced myself. I said, excuse me, I'm from Pittsburgh. I know that marks me as an outlander, but I'm a nice guy. I have two kids, good school. I'd like to move. Do you know of any apartments? And the old lady looked at me and she says, what do I look like, honey? A fucking real estate agent? And I knew I was in the right town. <laughs> we found a pl I found a place, and because I was an architect, I made a deal that I'd remodel it at my own price if I could get a reduction in the rent. So I got a great apartment on Willow Street in Brooklyn Heights. And then my agents immediately said, we have people for you. Who were the people? They were black comics because black comics had less money than white comics. And that was a good starting place for new writers. And luckily, I met some great people. Timmy Rogers was one who was a lovely guy. I later did an album for him if I were president for Mercury Records. You know where you have something in common with a great, great writer, showrunner, creator, 
is Don Rio. Because Don Rio, who has been a podcast guest here and also is the executive producer of Two and a Half Men right now, but created My Wife and Kids with Damon Wayans. Right. His roots was in black comedy, and it, it carried through to all the way to Damon Wayans because... When he was a teenager in Rhode Island, he found out that Slappy White was performing at a nightclub there. He snuck out of the house, went over there, went backstage, knocked on his door, and said, Mr. White, I've written some jokes for you I'd like to share with you. He read him the jokes, and Slappy looked up from his glasses on his nose and said, what are you doing this Saturday? And Don said, uh, nothing. He said, would you like to come to the Apollo with me? And you can be my straight man. Now, <laughs> the thing you said about Timmy Rogers was kind of fascinating. Don Rio shared that Slappy White's big routine was about a black president, and he played a guy asking him the questions as a black president, or what are you going to do if you become president? And so it's interesting that your comedian that you worked with was doing something similar. I think perhaps I uh, antedated uh, Rio by five or seven years, because by that time the record had been done and and squelched. What is your first job in television? How does it happen? How does it come about? Do you have a lot of interviews for shows and you don't get them? How do you get the first gig? You know, that that's a good question. I'm trying to remember what the first gig was. And I think it was when William Morris put me together with two other writers, Ronnie Axe and Saul Weinstein. We worked for the Jerry Lester show called Weekend. Jerry Lester had been one of the first Tonight Show hosts, and he's probably still alive or dead by popular demand, as are many of the comics I worked with. Anyway, we wrote a 90-minute show for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday that was syndicated, and it was a fascinating experience because Jerry Lester had been around forever, and now I'm in that condition of having been around forever. All right, what's next? I was uh, very much in demand writing uh, comedy, and I did comedy albums, which were big then. I see a Smothers Brothers album down there. I wrote for one of the Smothers Brothers albums called Think Ethnic, and I had eight or nine bands on it. One of the bands was something very simple, where Tommy Smothers goes around singing uh, soap, 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 soap. And Dickie says, what are you doing? He says, I'm just doing a couple bars. I know, I know. I'm not apologizing. It's called a living. Anyway, uh, the, the album sold great. But when it came time to collect for the deal that we had made, for writing all those bands, so much per band, our agency, William Morris, had conveniently lost our contract. We never collected. Am I saying that there may be skullduggery and indecent criminality in the business? Of course not. I've worked with nothing but gentlemen, spelled A-S-S-H-O-L-E-S. Did you fire your agent after that? No, because you don't fire your agent lightly. I didn't do that until I came to California. Got it. Okay, keep going. What's your next big job? I worked in toilets. You know what a toilet is? That was a term of art for a nightclub where the mafia had all the good tables and the men's room attendant quit because he couldn't stand the smell from the kitchen. You, it, it, so the first sitcom, or should I say half-hour yes. comedy Car 54, show. Where Are You? Wow, that was with uh, Fred 
Gwynn, right? Fred Gwynn. Played uh, Herman Munster. Herman Munster. Yep, lovely guy. So how did you get that first scripted gig? People had heard my the comics Zach wrote, I wrote and said, you got to hire this guy. And so they hired me. And they put an older writer with me to make sure they didn't have to eat the script, a guy named George Foster. I just did one episode because uh, that's the way it worked. What happened ultimately, and to me this is luck, talking about luck, I was writing an album for Vaughn Meter. He was from New England. He was a toilet comic in New England, and he had this accent, and he did a perfect Kennedy. Anyway, I'm with him the day Kennedy is assassinated. And he says, ah, shit, what am I going to do now? And that was a good question. The nation was in mourning. So he didn't work for almost six months and meanwhile chose me to write his new back-in-the-business-here-I-am Von Meter act. I wrote him his act. It was opening at the Blue Angel, then the most prestigious nightclub in New York. And because JFK and Von Meter had been so beloved, every new service was there. Every local, every national, every magazine, time, life, pick something. Everything was at field and stream was there. I mean, it was big. And Shelley Berman, God bless him, shows up in a tuxedo to introduce the act and me. And then Meter did his act, which got big, big laughs. And the reviews were all the same. The material was brilliant, but Vaughn Meter is an indifferent performer. And he was. He really didn't care. Danny Kaye was in the audience. Danny Kaye was in the audience with Perry Lafferty, his producer. Danny said, you're coming to California. And I didn't want to go because I'd been in California before. Anyway. And just so our audience knows, Danny Kaye was one of the first, I'd say, comedians that was like, he was not only a comedian, but he did some different kinds of entertaining as well. But he was one of the first comedians to venture into almost like a business of producing shows and putting things together. True. And he was a part of a lot of different things. Now, granted, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz were the first, but they weren't stand-up comedians per se. You could say that Lucille Ball was, but it was very brief, I believe, in her career. But Danny Kay had a big career in that realm. And then uh, I'd say the first male person in that realm to actually do that, and he was uh, very, very powerful. He was, and a, a brilliant man, by the way. Danny Kay was a genius. Harvey Corman used to say, Danny does a great impression of a human being, which was also true because he was an unusual, damaged guy. But he was an airline pilot. He was a surgery expert. He was a close friend of DeBakey, who pioneered heart transplantation, and Danny was there in the surgery with him frequently. He was also a master chef. The guy was a genius. So you come out to California. Come out to California. And you work on what show? The Danny Kay Show. I was there for two years. And then how did that go, and how did that lead to the next opportunity? Well, what happened was they, we did 39 shows a year then. Think about that, 39 shows, 39 hours. Now, today, the most you ever do in one season of a scripted show would probably be like 27. So if there's a show, syndication now, for those of you listening, has gotten a less episodes needed 
normally it's like 88 now, but in the heyday of things for like three decades, it was 100 episodes was the benchmark. Yeah. And you try to reach that in four seasons. So you do 22 the first season, 25 the second season, 25 the third season, and 27 the fourth season. But back when Ron was writing, it was a different philosophy. Now, granted, there were shows like The Honeymooners that didn't do it that way. I mean, they did a total of 33 shows only, I believe. Anyway, I was there for two years. I was really very successful. Danny liked me a lot. And uh, I was unhappy with doing the same thing week in, week out. And I wanted to branch out and not just be a joke writer. Because, uh, you know, a joke writer is a joke writer is a joke writer, and you're truly an interchangeable part. So what I did is I quit the Danny Kay show, unheard of, to quit a high-paying job, visible job, and I started to do half hours. And uh, the business then, as it is now, is highly stratified. If you are a joke writer, that's what you are. You're a joke writer. If you write half hour, that's all you do. You write that. If you're a drama, that's all. You only write dramas. So I had to break these ceilings each time out and convince people I could. And so uh, even though I had written My Favorite Martian in New York and Car 54, Where Are You? I came out here and I had to convince somebody to give me a shot. And they did. And so I wrote for Bewitched, I Dream of Jeannie, My Living Doll, Love on a Rooftop, The Partridge Family, by that time, my wife had come back in New York, and we divorced subsequently, and I'm remarried, and all of those life-changing things that make me wonder how I'm still sitting here. If you're an artist, you're very fortunate, because for what other people are devastating points of no return, for an artist, there are opportunities to find a way to use your muse to save your life. You've worked on so many shows. What I'd like to do is something a little different. I'm going to mention a show that you worked on, and I'd love you to tell me one story that ties in and, and might give our audience some sense of what you were going through, but the uniqueness of the business that's sure. sort of like pulling back the curtain Happy to what to we're do doing. That. Bewitched. Bewitched was a treat for me, and... Uh, the first show I wrote was called The Joker is a Card, because Paul Lind, whom I knew from the Jonathan Winter Show... Another great stand-up comedian who was comics uh, of best, all time. best known as the middle square in the yes, Hollywood square. Yes, instant squares. funny. When asked uh, what Hollywood star said, what a dump, he said, Dumbo. <laughs> yes. Anyway, Paul was, was great, and he knew me, and... <laughs> Oh, why I'm laughing so hard. It is great, isn't it? I mean, that's that's pretty quick. I don't turn my nose up at shit jokes. <laughs> anyway, I wrote this show and created the character of Uncle Arthur, the practical joking warlock. And I got to meet Liz Montgomery and her husband, Bill Asher, who became a very good friend of mine. So you created the Paul Lynn character. Yes. Wow, that's incredible. And that was a recurring at first, right? Yeah, and it became a regular, right? Absolutely. Because he was so funny, he was. And that that happens today as well. When commit like when people go into sitcoms or pilots, you have to know if you're an actor out there, and it relates to anything. Uh, this pilot season, a person who I work with, who I have enormous amount of respect for, Sherry O'Terry from Saturday Night Live fame, she has an opportunity to do a project. It was a smaller role, but something that was really something special. 
But for Sherry, when you're a certain level of actress, you're doing something a certain amount of years, there's certain things that you want and certain things that you don't want. And so there were a select few characters that she was interested in. This was one, but it was small. And I'm sure she wondered aloud, why am I going in for this? Why am I going to do this? Because it's a great role, but it's just a guest shot. And I'd really love to be a series regular. And we talked about it a little bit, went back and forth, and had a great dialogue. And she was excited to go in, but also realistic in the sense that, hey, what's going to happen? It's just a guest shot. And one of the things we always talk about with Sherry is that she's a holy shit moment kind of actress. She doesn't do anything cheesy, and every time the red light goes on, she is undeniable. And we talked about when you go in and you do great work and you really are well prepared, anything can happen. She goes in, she does the table read, and lo and behold, probably less than two hours later, get the call. We want to make her a series regular. We want to bump her up to series regular. And the same thing happened 40 years ago or 50 years ago with Paul Lind on his show. He comes in, a character's written for him to come in maybe an episode or two and be funny, and then he blows people away. It never stops everybody who's listening, no matter what decade you're in. You go in, you blow people away, you move up. And that's what happened in Ron's career as well. And, you know, one other thing I wanted to say about Bewitch, when I was a young man, Elizabeth Montgomery was the only character on television that was, like, supermodel beautiful and funny. I don't remember any character on television that was that beautiful and and also was involved in the funny show and was a lead in a funny show. Well, you were there on the set. Was she as beautiful as I thought she was? Yeah, she was. She was. Now, rumor has it that she was very eccentric and a little bit crazy. You know, the only thing I can say is who isn't, particularly in show business. If I met somebody without a tick or a strangeness, I knew I was talking to an accountant. I want to ask you yeah. about something that happened in that show, too, that... Happened, happened in one other show that I remember. And ironically, you did a little stint on both of the shows. All in the Family yep. and Bewitched have something in common. Do you know what it is? I'm thinking hard. We have the original Darren that was replaced. Oh, oh, oh. Yep, yep, yep. And the original Lionel was replaced. Was replaced. Mm -hmm. And nobody cared. I cared about Lionel, and well, I care. I I I love the original Darren. I wasn't I as too. big a fan of Dick Sargent. He was more of like a Dick Van Dykeish kind of. And the first guy, Dick York. Dick York. Dick brilliant. York was edgy and brilliant. Yeah, with a rubber face, he could look five ways at once. So what happened there? How well, often he, uh, is there a sitcom that's like number one? that replaces the second lead. Well, it's been kept very quiet, and I will continue to honor that because uh, everybody knew that, let's say, Dick had some problems that made uh, filming with him on a regular daily basis uh, too problematic. 
that was it. But there's a lot of people have problems. Chris Thompson, who was a guest on this show, shared that he's been an alcoholic and a, and a drug user since he was nine years old. And he continued to work, and they would bring people in to be like handlers, and they would talk to the network. Oh, There's well people like Roseanne who've created much more problems than Dick Believe York. Believe me, I know. And Brett Butler is famous. And So then why is it that they— Well, because there is an invisible line that can be drawn whimsically and on demand by a network or a studio. And beyond that point, all bets are off. It's just there is a limit, and you don't think there is— my example of limits not being drawn, not boundaries not being drawn in time, was Chico and the Man. I wrote, I forget how many Chico and the Mans. Freddie Prince was brilliant. And I watched Freddie go from an occasional toot to snorting a basketball-sized lump of cocaine, just like Al Pacino did in uh, that uh, Scarface remake. And I watched him ultimately get to the point where he did commit suicide and killed himself. And Freddie Prince was a brilliant kid. He was a great pianist, a great dancer, ballet trained. And uh, I think he had maybe had some unresolved sexual issues, but what couldn't have and be an Hispanic. And also he had problems because he was a Puerto Rican playing a Mexican. And some Mexican uh, gangbangers got annoyed and worked their way into the show as consultants. So there were a lot of pressures on him, but I watched. Nobody at that time blew the whistle. Nobody said that's enough. Nobody cut him off. If they had, he'd have had a lengthy career. So when, I, when you watch that happen and you feel for the person and you know the person, it's, it's difficult and it tells me something that I must never forget and anybody in the business must never forget, which is that the business has no memory and no moral character whatsoever because it's always dictated by situational ethics. What do we need here? Who do we have to kill to get it? And the old joke, who do I have to fuck to get out of this business, is no joke. It's factual. So if you're gonna be an artist, you have to be sturdy, and you have to have your own moral compass, and you have to have the guts and the strength to cleave to it, or you will be whisked away by your, by your flaws. There is that, that point, like on the old maps, Beyond here lie dragons. And when a performer, a writer, anybody gets to that point, that's it. So did Dick York ever work again? Never. Wow. Okay, Charlie's Angels. Yep. Had great fun because Aaron Spelling was what we used to call my rabbi. When you had somebody in the industry who carried you through and was there to advise, I used to say Aaron built my house. Because for Aaron, I did 19 pilots or pilot rewrites. He would call me like Thursday night and say, I got a table reading Tuesday, baby. It's got to be a two-hour Starsky and Hutch. What can we do? And I do it. I'm fortunate I get out of my own way. So I was very fortunate. And for Aaron, I did 54 Fantasy Islands. I forget how many Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angels, what were some of the other shows? I can't even remember. There were so many of them. And pilots. By the way, I did 56 pilots for all the networks and a lot of producers. Incredible. And I did a lot of pilot rewrites for no credit and no residuals. Well, considering the remake is doing really well now, The Odd Couple. Yes, The Odd Couple. I loved The Odd Couple, and I had connection, real connection with both Tony Randall and Jack Klugman. I loved writing for them. Some of my happiest moments were on that show. 
And one of the oddments in the show was at one time at a cast or at a Christmas party, I did a few stand-up minutes, and Tony and Jack's manager, a legendary guy named Abby Greshler. Abby Greshler was the most powerful manager in the business, but he looked like he'd been dead for four days. And the joke was that Ted Turner, who colorized old pictures on Ted Turner's channel, that he was going to colorize Abby. Anyway, I love doing the show. Get smart. Get Smart was very interesting because I knew Don Adams and I had written for Don Adams. And by the way, I said, where did you get Maxwell Smart? And he said, well, I used to do carbons, which are impressions. He said, one of my favorite one was of William Powell. William Powell always spoke in this manner. He said, I just pushed it a little bit and I had smart. It was, it was fun. Happy days. Happy days was great because Gary Marshall or whoever the story editor was said, we want to introduce a character on a motorcycle. You write that episode. That was Fonzie. All right, let's back up. I thought so. Fonzie was not in the pilot. No. When did Fonzie get introduced? Whenever I wrote that that script. So you were the one who introduced the Fonz. Yep. To the world. Yep. And you're also the person who introduced Paul Lynn to the world. Yes. Yeah. That's incredible. No, that's another show. <laughs> yep. Wow. Yeah. Tell me about the experience of writing that character and how you visualized the character. I was thrilled because I liked Henry Winkler. But when you found out he was cast yeah. and you saw him deliver the words at the table read in that character for the first time. I wasn't time. invited to the table read because I wasn't on staff. In Got those it. days, staffs were very lean. There would be two people or three. And everything else was uh, Under, understood. So when you saw him do it for the first time, was Perfect. it exactly the way you envisioned it? Perfect. He was just like all the Italian guys that used to hang out in front of Poli's restaurant in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. Same guys, same guys. Starsky and Hutch. That was Aaron. And Starsky and Hutch was, I got that job for a very unique, in a very unique way. And it's something I always tell my students. You never know what effect what you have written might have on someone until maybe years later. I'd written a novel called Trust Woody that got around. I was offered publication, and I turned him down like a schmuck. Anyway, somebody had given that novel seven years earlier to the producer of Starskin Hutch, Joe Narr. When I was presented to Joe Narr, he said, I read his book. Bring him in. That was it. Seven years later, he read my book. I came in. I pitched one. He said, you're on. To write it. So that first episode was nominated for a lot of things. One of the actors, Art Matrano, got an Emmy nomination. And after that, I was Aaron's best guy. I could write as many Starsky and Hutches as I wanted. And I wrote two spinoffs on Starsky and Hutch. The uh, first was called Huggy Bear and the Turkey. Huggy Bear was a black character who gave street information, played by Antonio Fargus. Everybody loved that show. I asked Sammy Davis Jr., is it too much if I have one of the black snitches in there named Blind Bessie ask the white guy who th she thinks is black, prove to me that you're a brother. And what the white guy says is, when do the new Cadillacs come in? <laughs> and Sammy said, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's righteous. You do that. As I understood later, that was on the schedule, ready to go. I was set to produce... The new series, I had six stories, two scripts, ready to go. And then, nope, off the schedule. Do it again. 
for the guy who later played the captain on Love Boat, Gavin McLeod. I never understood two years later when somebody told me, he said, you know, ABC said, we can't have a black star on our show. We have enough blacks as it is. I later had that same pleasure when I did a show for a Chinese-American band leader named George G, who has big bands that play all over the world. And uh, it was on the schedule at CBS and then taken off. Found out years later why can't have a Chinaman head up a CBS show. Wow. Gilligan's Island. I loved Gilligan's Island. I know it was dumb, but to me it's an exemplar of how you do an opening sequence that lets everybody know what the show is about and leaves no one out. So anybody can catch up immediately. Bob Denver was a lovely guy, and uh, Sherwood Schwartz really loved me. Anytime Sherwood did a show... He hired me. Another show that featured a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful woman, but she was a straight person on the show, totally. I Dream of Jeannie. Oh, Barbara Eden's a great girl. She was delightful. She really was. I had a great time with her, and I knew Larry Hagman well because one of his close friends, Max Schulman, a great writer, was my close friend. And uh, so it was... A cinch and fun because it was a ripoff of Bewitched and is a paradigm for that kind of show where somebody, a neighbor, the police, somebody always says, what's going on in that house? And Bewitched is a ripoff of a 1940 Veronica Lake, Frederick March movie called I Married a Witch. Years later, there was an enormous lawsuit, which, of course, was settled out of court. A show that I, whenever I hear the name of it, I think of a quick bit by a brilliant comedian named Kenny Rogerson where he reenacts a scene from the show with Ricardo Montalban and Hervé <laughs> Villachez. I love them. Where he says, Ricardo Montalban says, there's a plane coming in, tattoo. A very special man is coming into town. Oh, really? What, what, uh, what does he do? What does he want? What is his fantasy? Um, to fuck a midget. <laughs> oh, the pain, the pain. <laughs> if you knew Hervé, you would know how funny that is. Because Hervé was actually a wonderful guy. I had two great dwarf friends. I'm talking about Fantasy Island. Yes, Michael Dunn, Ship of Fools, also the original Wild Wild West. Brilliant guy, courageous guy used to go in to a hospital twice a year to have sternal st punctures made in his sternum to try to find the source of spina bifida, which is what gave him his dwarfism. Courageous guy. Funny. And like Hervé, he had the same problem that a lot of little guys have, which is people follow them into the men's room to see how big their dicks are. This is a problem for little people. I never knew that. It's true. Don't they always look bigger? <laughs> You're right. But the thing is, Hervé carried a pistol, a little gun, and waited for somebody to sneak a peek at his dick while he was at the urinal. And he turned around and put the, the gun in their balls and say, would you like me to ventilate your pants? <laughs> <laughs> the mother load, all in the family. All in the family was great fun. And oddly enough, one of the story editors, Mickey Ross, was one of the first guys to give me a job writing comedy in New York. He'd been, a bomb He'd been an aviator, a pilot in the Second World War and flew something like 80 missions. 
brilliant, brilliantly funny, lovely guy. It was great. And Norman Lear is a great admirer of mine, friend of mine. I, I love Norman. He was always a fan of mine. And I loved doing the show because it was an important show. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, my show, which was about people that sell aluminum siding, got a lot of mail because people had been ripped off by aluminum siding salesmen. That you convince people if they don't put aluminum siding on their house, they're going to have big, big bills for their furnaces. And the deal was this. I would go into a house and say, I'm Inspector Meredith from the Furnace Commission, and I think you're losing BTUs, which are British thermal units, which nobody knew, but it sounds important. And I had a light meter. My job was to walk toward the window and the needle moves, and I'd go, oh, whoa. Oh, look at that. You see that needle? What does it mean? Your BTUs are going right out the window. Your furnace may be in danger of exploding. I know, I know, I needed the money. However, Inspector Meredith, my superior, I wasn't Meredith, I forget my name, is right up the street. I'll see if I can get him to come in and hope he won't red tag your furnace. Red tag? You can't red tag my furnace. It's cold out. You, you know, can't do that. What does it mean to red tag a furnace? Nothing. He had red paper tags and wires. Anyway, I'm now indicting myself before your eyes. Forget it. Statute of limitations, I'm out of it. Anyway, that's what I wrote about. Archie gets one of those swindlers. A lot of people got swindled. Awesome. Let's talk about your association with something that is just probably become some of the hugest of all time kind of uh, content, which is uh, G.I. Joe. How did you come up with creating that? And then how did that lead to you writing the movie, the animated movie, Transformers the movie? Well, uh how does that happen? I'd always loved animation and always loved comic books. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm an artist. I love the art of it. The uh, captive ad agency, Sunbow, that did the commercials for the forthcoming G.I. Joe series, did a, a talent hunt in Hollywood. They did not want an animation writer to write the pilot for G.I. Joe because animation writers were frowned upon. That is being the boneyard of writers. Those that could weren't writing animation because there were no residuals there were no benefits there was no guild no protection and you were screwed regularly and uh, were not respected so they did a talent search to find a real writer who could do it and they saw a couple hundred people and they picked me because i told them how i felt this kind of show could go all i knew about it were some of these creatures these small action figures in you know cardboard and plastic containers And I said, you have to develop characters, which means, because there's so many of them, you can't just have them drift by in the hundreds. You need to establish connections, connectivity to a character, and that character's personality are essential for children. How do you know this? Because one of the things I was asked to do when I was in architectural school was to be on the panel of a pilot project to examine why children buy products by the then School of Business Administration, which was called the School of Industrial Administration. And I had to interact with kids with various games and toys in the presence of of senior members of the psychology department who were trying to chart a path from a kid's heart to a product. So I was aware of what was necessary. They said, what do you suggest? I I suggest you do a five-part miniseries so that there's time for these various characters to register as individuals, and they gave me the job. 
and I did this pioneering five-part, half-hour miniseries of G.I. Joe, which was a smash, and then I did another two of them, which were also smashes. I never wrote the daily episodes or the stripping stuff, and because of the success of that, Hasbro wanted me to do everything. And uh, that's how I got to the Transformers. They had this show, a Japanese show. They had six, 64 episodes, which were basically unfunny and impenetrable. They said, make them funny and make them penetrable. So I rewrote the first 64 episodes, and that led me to write The Transformers, the movie. And in between, I wrote a bunch of other things. Some of them never happened. So uh, we need to sort of get into the final roundup here, but I have a couple more questions. You, 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 you met so many different people in your life. You worked with so many different uh, kinds of people. Tell me uh, somebody who you met along the way that might not show up on your resume, but that was one of the most extraordinary experiences of your life. Well, any extraordinary experience does show up on my resume because luckily they were famous individuals who have great accomplishment. And Zero Mostel is one of my favorites. Uh, Zero. Zero Mostel was famous for being the lead in a little production called Fiddler on the Roof. And a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And uh, I got a call at 11 at night from two producers I knew, and they said, you've got to come to Lake Arrowhead now. And I said, why? They said, because we're doing two specials for Chevrolet, and the stars in both are Zero Mostel and Burgess Meredith, which immediately made me question their sanity. Burgess Meredith was the original Penguin in the Batman series and, of course, was nominated or won an Academy Award for Rocky. Absolutely. And an interesting guy because Burgess uh, not only went to the beat of a different drummer, if you would say, how are you, Burgess? He would say Tuesday, and to him it was perfectly sensible. At any rate, I was told... We're here. We're in Arrowhead. We got the sets built. We have this, the whole company here, Jill St. John, Joey Heatherton, and uh, also Zero. And Zero won't do the show. He said the scripts are shit. You got to come now. I said, call my agent. Wake him. They called him and made an enormous deal. I took my wife. We drove to Arrowhead. We got there a quarter to three in the morning. The producers are waiting, sweating, smoking. Uh, zero, 10 o'clock tomorrow. He wants, he wants to know what you're going to do to fix the scripts. Here's the script now. Were you going to rewrite it? I said, no, I can't rewrite a, two scripts tonight. Let me look at it. Well, you, you got to be ready for zero in the morning. Goes, ah, ah. My wife said, when we were alone, she said, can you do this? I said, this is what I do for a living. I better be able to do it. She said, aren't you worried? I said, no. How can I be worried? I've got to come up. Got to come up to the mark. Anyway, the next morning, 10 o'clock, I go downstairs. Zero is sitting there. And Bill was a big man, big, with black piercing eyes. And the producers are sitting there smoking and putting the cigarettes out in their hands to keep themselves on edge. <laughs> and Zero says, is this a genius who's going to show me what's wrong with the fucking shows? I said, yes. He said, well, what's wrong with them? And I said, there are no Romanians in them. <laughs> there was dead silence. The producers are now absolutely ready to kill themselves. And then Zero says, Romanians, brilliant. Whatever he says, we'll do. Now leave us. We must confer in private. Then they leave. And he said, Romanian, mommy knew. And I said, you'd prefer Pollocks. He said, no, six of one, half a dozen of the other. We became great friends. I rewrote it. Both shows. 
did them well. And because he was a painter and I'm a painter, we compared notes about painting. We barely became close. And when my wife and I, second wife and I got married, he said, come to the house. Well, the house was this massive apartment at the Majestic in New York, where he had literally $30, $40 million worth of art on the walls because he used to meet emigrant Jews fleeing Hitler, painters, sculptors. He'd meet them at the boat. He'd get them laid. He'd get them an apartment. He'd say, do a painting at the Russian tea room. That's good for six months of lunch. And he had this massive art collection. I said, Zero, you're a communist. What about this? He said, it means nothing to me. It means nothing. Anyway, he said, I have a gift for you for your wedding. Napoleon brandy. It was brandy from the cellar of Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Wonderful guy. Awesome. I went to his art studio. We're talking art. He gets a call and goes, oh, and he hangs out. What's the matter? Is he? he says, my brother, he's dead. I said, oh, that's terrible. He said, no, he was a, a scunyak, a scumbag, a gunif. He said, he died in the Schwitz. That's a Turkish bath. He says, I must go identify the remains. I said, oh, I'll leave. No, you wait. I won't be long. Comes back 20 minutes later. I said, you saw your brother? Yes. He died on the top shelf in the steam room. They didn't know he was there for three days. <laughs> I said, how did he look? He said, fabulous. His cheeks were rosy. We're going to leave the top up on the coffin. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more about Zero. Just now, great. Tell me about... You started in the world of African-American artists and, and in that whole world was where your, your launch was. Tell me about somebody in that world who you met throughout your career, maybe one person that had an impact on you, and how did it go down? Well, I was always very friendly with blacks. That's why I was made the uh, president of my senior high school class because all the black kids voted for me. Because I'm the only one to talk to them, they said. The only white guy to talk to them like they were people. And I always had black friends. And my grandfather introduced me to A. Philip Randolph, who formed the Pullman Porters Union, because he had sold insurance to the Pullman's Porter Union. So if they died, their families had something. Anyway, and uh, my mother and my grand they always said the same thing. We were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves here. We have a bond. You must help them when you can. You must treat them like you want to be treated. And I did. And it was always that way. And so uh, my first partner as an architect was a black kid who had been my classmate in Carnegie Tech. So when a black and a Jew have an architectural firm, we had trouble getting white contractors to bid on our jobs. And occasionally our scaffolding would be torn down and set fire and there'd be a swastika and something about blacks put on the barricades. So I was used to all of it and I talked the same language and I was always very comfortable with them because they were always people to me and the shade of difference never mattered. And that's what Timmy Rogers liked when I said, well, let's call this shade of difference. He said, that's right. Uh, I met Nipsey Russell was a great guy and a war hero that nobody knew. He kept quiet. And as I say, Godfrey Cambridge and Flip Wilson, this guy, Les Crane, had a talk show at night in New York. Very, very popular. And I wrote some material for him for a smoker, a dinner he did. 
And he said, I'm having lunch with Malcolm X. You want to come along? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So we went up to Harlem. I'm trying to remember the name of the restaurant, whatever it was. It was near Small's Paradise. And I sat there with Malcolm, who did most of the talking. Malcolm. Yeah. Malcolm X. Malcolm X, otherwise known as Red Little. That was his name before he converted. And he had come back from Mecca doing his hajj, his pilgrimage, and found out that Muslims came in all shades. And they weren't white devils because there were white Muslims and they were blue eyes. How could, how could the Honorable Elijah Muhammad be right? And he talked about that. He said, now where I am, he said, where I am now, he says, I ain't going to live very long. I'm not going to live very long. He never said ain't. And he was funny. He had a real sense of humor, really strong sense of humor and a, a great intellect. You knew when he looked at you, he was listening. He was listening. So that was memorable. Awesome. We're going to do a little word association here. I'm going to mention a name. Just mention the first few words that come to mind, and we're going to go rapid fire here. Go ahead. All right, Mel Brooks. I like Mel. I think he's brilliant, and I've met him 82 times, but Mel doesn't want to know me. I don't know why. I love him. He's marvelous. Lucille Ball. Lucy was great. I loved Lucy. She loved me. We really hit it off, and uh, we had a lot of laughs, and I mean big laughs, Always, she told me stories about Desi and Orson Welles that were great. I mean, and I, I really loved her. And I liked her sister, who was actually her cousin, Cleo, Cleo Smith, who was married to the, uh, the great uh, movie reviewer for the L.A. Times, Chuck Champlin. It was wonderful. Don Knotts. Don Knotts I only met briefly, and I had a great laugh with him many times because he was from West Virginia. But he was a delightful guy, and he was really a ladies' man, which nobody knew. Because who suspected that this guy was really nailing anything that was not nailed down? Truman Capote. Truman was a lovely guy. We lived on Brooklyn Heights, my family, my wife and I, and my two kids. And when I take my kids for a walk, Truman would often be out there on the promenade at Columbia Heights, which is a street he lived on with Oliver Smith, a great scene designer. And uh, we were one block over on Willow Street. And he always said hello to the children, was very nice, and liked my little boy tremendously. Anyway, we're walking one day, and another neighbor across the street is walking. That was Norman Mailer. And he's walking with his giant standard poodle, which takes an enormous shit and walks on. And my kids sort of, oh, they were shocked, and they laughed. And Truman said to my kids, you think that's a big shit? That's a bigger shit. And he pointed to Mailer. <laughs> <laughs> Roseanne Barr. Roseanne, I certainly didn't know, but I was called in by Nil people I'd worked for on Nelvana. They were going to do this animated uh, one-shot, this, this animated hour for Roseanne and Tom Arnold. And uh, because I'd done a lot of work for them, they wanted me to do be on this staff. Everybody else on the staff had met Roseanne and Tom in Cocaine Anonymous. So everybody there had a tick, was chewing gum, eating sugar, and mainlining halava. It was really, like, amazing. I come in, I'm sitting in the office, and Rosie and Tom come in, and Tom says, Hi, do you want to see Rosie's tattoo? I said, What? He pulls down her pants, and her enormous left cheek is right in my face, and on it it says, Property of Tom Arnold. He leaves her pants down and says, do you want to see mine? I said, no, thanks. I'm trying to cut down. <laughs> he pulls down his pants, and on his hairy ass, there's a heart and the word Rosie on it. And they walked out with their asses hanging out. Now, the only time I saw them again was at their wedding, which was at a synagogue in Westwood. And... 
The funniest thing about the wedding was it was an orthodox ceremony with a ketubah, which is a bill of wedding. And all these drug addicts were in the, in the uh, audience. And to see a bunch of drug addicts twitching and eating sugar and chewing gum in a synagogue during big services is funny. But the funniest thing was in the social hall later. As we came down into the social hall for eating, there is a band on stage and a singer who begins by going, as Rosie and Tom come in, and I'm thinking right out of Tevye, you know, and his daughters, and they blend into Kung Fu Fighting, which was the (laughs) first dance they did at the wedding. You don't forget these things. Miles Davis. Miles, I knew Miles, and I knew Miles in an odd way. I had done this album with Timmy Rogers in which one of the mainstays was a guy whose name was Hal Cromer, brilliant comic and the first black actor to do white impressions. Hal Cromer was a very handsome guy. I get to the Chateau Marmont, one of the weirdest hotels on the planet, which is where the Danny Kay show put me up, and I'm down by the pool, and I see Hal. I said, Hal. What, what are you doing here? Why didn't you tell me you'd be in town? He said, we all look the same to you, don't we, baby? I said, why are you talking so funny, Hal? Who are you doing? Who is that? He said, hey, that's it. We all look the same. I said, Hal, what's the problem? He said, I'm just fucking with you. I'm not Hal. Don't you know who I am? I said, I have no idea. You could be Hal's twin. He says, yeah, I get off on this. Everybody always said that was Miles. Miles Davis and Hal Cromer were, like, identical. Miles was an interesting man. Let's put it that way. Jonathan Winters. Jonathan, I love Jonathan. We really hit it off. I used to ad-lib with Jonathan all the time. Johnny had something that Robin Williams didn't have, and that's what killed Robbins. Johnny was a painter. He had another place to go with his anger and with his desire to entertain. So when he was down, he could paint. He could draw. One of his great famous paintings was of a bunch of fish heading left with one fish heading right. He called it school dropout. Norman Lear. Norman is great. Norman was brilliant and always respectful, glad to have me on board. And once said to me when Arnie Rosen, the late Arnie Rosen, a terrific writer, brought me in, he said, you know, there aren't many of you out there who can actually write what's necessary and make sure it's funny, and that also does a story that tracks and I really appreciated that. Norman's been absolutely a good guy to me forever. Stan Lee. Stan Lee is marvelous. I love Stan Lee. I've known him now for almost 30 years. Maybe it's longer. And we really hit it off. And I've done a lot of projects with Stan because of Stan, including writing two feature film versions of the Fantastic Four, neither one of which, pardon me, were used because the producer owned the rights, Bernd Eichinger, a German guy who later did produce one uh, just had no creative spark except when he was doing movies about Hitler then he was in his element the late, the late Buddy Hackett Buddy Hackett I, I, you know I was told by my agent you know there's a smart young comic working on the island you gotta go see him he got out there you have to be there at 2 o'clock he got a very late show so I go out to this shitty motel where he's been doing it at some club across the way. My agent's waiting. He said, let me go into his room and tell him you're here, wait in the hall. So he goes down the hall, goes into the room. He comes out, ashen, and he gets back in the door. He says, he'll see you now. I go in, Buddy Hackett's standing on a bed naked 
wearing bandoliers and two guns. He says, hi, want to see me shoot the fucking mirror? I said, what? He takes out the gun. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. He blew the mirrors away. He says, now I'm going to kill the fucking ceiling. Bang, bang, bang. And the plaster's coming down. I ran out. The agent said, well, are you going to work for him? <laughs> we didn't stay in touch. <laughs> and when I told people who knew him afterwards, they said, yeah, he was you know, big on guns then. And he was hitting the, hitting the sauce a little too hard. Finally, Lucille Ball. Lucy was wonderful. We really hit it off immediately. She liked me. She liked my sense of humor. All right, final few questions. Yeah. Your biggest disappointment in show business? Well, I have had so many of them. I can't begin to catalog one as particularly big, but... And how did it propel you to go forward in a positive direction? Well, one of them was that uh, I had a staged reading of a play of mine called A Place in the Land in Santa Monica with a brilliant cast, Herb Edelman, Howard Morris, a British West End actor, James Warwick, and there were two readings and standing ovation, people screaming with laughter, and I had two backers in the audience that were going to, they were going to take this everywhere. One died, two weeks later the other one died. Never happened. Still a great play. It's this. Two old Jews buy land for a cemetery for their aging, popu- aging congregation. The people that sold them the land figured they can get more from a shopping center. So before the sale is final, they change the zoning. It can only be a cemetery if somebody creates it as a cemetery by burying a body before Tuesday at midnight. <laughs> so two old Jews have to find a stiff. That's great. Your proudest moment in show business. I've had so many proud moments getting a a plaque, certificate for a plaque from the Writers Guild, being the only writer to have written for five of the 101 best written series on television. And they were the Andy Griffith Show, All in the Family, Get Smart, Barney Miller, and The Odd Couple. Fantastic. Yeah, I thought it was nice. Last question, and probably something that you share with your students as well. Tell me what advice you would give for the young artist coming up, the young person who wants to be a writer or a comedian or okay. or anything in this business that they could possibly dream of, and to have the kind of career of all the writers and showrunners that you work with, including yourself, that, uh, that you feel could really, really, uh, the advice could help them get to the next level and also... You've also worked with a lot of executives on the other side sure have. who have risen through the ranks. What advice would you give for the young person who wants to be on the other side of the business in this uh, world and to help drive uh, television shows forward and films who are executives? You must always stay open and stay curious and pursue your curiosity, but don't do it in idiotic arenas. Go back and acquaint yourself with the great minds of the past. Look at great art. Listen to great music. Know who the artists were. Understand how they worked and what arena and what era they worked. How their time shaped them. How their times made possible what they did or made it impossible and somehow they surmounted it. And be develop what I like to call colors on your artist's palette. So you'll be able to give a feel immediately, a recognizable contact with something that exists, being able to draw on all that went before you, rubbing your mind against great minds of the past, 
and never quitting, never giving up, never turning away, and always remembering that if you choose to do this, you must love it, and you must learn to love the people in it and treat them as you would want to be treated. Be glad of each day and make the most of it because it's your only shot. And avoid sweets. <laughs> Fantastic. Ron Friedman, incredible. I really enjoyed it. I, I was unexpected. Too. I didn't know that this would be so wonderful. It was tremendous, and I'm greatly appreciative. All of that. this was a lie for Nathan's sake. I'm not going to let him hang out to dry. I'm honored that you came here. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled. Thank you very much, Barry. As always, this is Barry Katz with Industry Standard, and if you like the show, tell all your friends, and if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory I'll scream your name and Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.